It's a sunny day here in Connecticut. It's only about 45 degrees. It's been raining on and off all day. Uh, but I'll be doing some drinking tonight, so I'm in a good mood. Okay. It's the same weather conditions here. <laughs> yeah. We actually were Where are you guys living now? In Hoboken. Oh, still in Hoboken. Okay. Yeah, we were talking about our last podcast, how much we love clouds. Fucking overcast is so tight. Oh, yeah. Uh, overcast weather is definitely preferable. Uh, but you, you do have... I used to be of the position that, you know, if I if I design my ideal week, I'd really only have, like, one day of sun, like, every week or every couple mm. weeks. What's the reason But as I've gotten older, I think that ratio is a little too strict. I, I would allow two or three days of, of sun because... You need sunlight occasionally to remember why overcast weather is nice. <laughs> we need like a like a four and a half to two and a half day split of clouds to sun. Four and a half to two and a half. I would even go four and three quarters. Straight to go four three. Basically, you know, every other switch it off every other day. The region of the world that we live in. If you really want to drill down on this, let's talk about weather sunny. first. Yes, let's do it this. Is, it is sunny most of the time. I mean, this isn't. England, okay, this isn't Patagonia. Like, the, the sun is out the overwhelming majority of the time. So you may say, oh, well, every other day, four to three, that doesn't really, that's not really cloudy. No, it would be very cloudy compared to what we currently experience if you actually had three days of full overcast weather each week. I mean, that would be a, a sea change in our weather experience. Well, the, the sun itself is like a weird thing because it's like, at the same time, it's like the best thing in the entire universe, but it's also like shitty for you too. Like it burns your skin. Oh yeah, it like fucks you up. That's, that's, <laughs> it like that's, makes that's, you that's sweaty. The great of the sun is that it's the giver of light. Right, we but could. It's, not it's literally the most important thing. And you can't look at it without going blind. <laughs> yeah, and I'm a fair-skinned lad. Nice is a fair-skinned lad. Uh, you're not fair-skinned, but you probably get sunburned too, and it's like the worst fucking thing in the world. Yeah, Chief, is there, is there, yeah I, I get, I definitely get sunburned if I don't. Sunburn is like the bane uh, of my existence. What was that? It's the bane. sunburn is like the worst thing in the world. If like I was rating. Like ways to be tortured, like slowly being sunburnt would be probably at the top of the list. That would not be close to the top of the list for me. But you know, if we're, if we're talking about methods of torture, no, nothing is going to be pleasant. So yes, that would be awful. Do you want to start with a torture not- game? <laughs> you have, you know some torture no. games? <laughs> well, let's uh, bring the audience in here and talk about our least preferred method of torture. <laughs> well, I mean, tor- torture is difficult, but in terms of just death. Uh, I can tell you that, um, well, I have a conflicting position on this. Let's hear Because I'm tempted to think that being burned to death would be the worst way of death. However, I have heard that, you know, if you're burned at the stake or whatever, that you asphyxiate due to the smoke long before your flesh is actually on fire. You choke to death before you die. So if that's the case, maybe that wouldn't be that bad. Mm. Where, who have you heard that from? Someone who's choked to death on smoke? No, 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 no. <laughs> Just, I've read it. I read it somewhere a while ago. That, yeah, when they burned people to stake, all those people died of, uh, you know, carbon monoxide poisoning and suffocation and asphyxiation before they were set on fire. Although I think we also have to make a distinction. I, it's not like it's not painful until your skin is actually on fire. I'm sure the heat is, is unbearable, but long before flesh is consumed by flame well think about touching like a hot stove like you touch it yeah, if exactly. you burn yourself good that's gonna hurt for like fucking two hours at least yeah yeah hours 
many hours. Right. So in the in the moment, in your entire body that's got to be fucking painful. And the, just choking yeah, to death. Yeah, that's got to be awful. Choking to death right, in you, and you, of you, itself you, would be you awful the, too. Uh, I'm gonna sign up back up with um, being burned as, as the worst. Drowning. Drowning is bad too. That's probably my number two. I that mean, seems the like way the scariest way to die. Really, gunshot to the head. Have no, you, that's preferable. You know, that's painless. Do you know the uh, Michael Caine quote in The Prestige? Yes. Uh, yeah. It's like going home. Great movie, by the way. Oh, such a good movie. What did he say? He compares drowning to going home. Right. He he says it's like going home and then... What the guess, fuck does that mean? I don't know. I don't. I guess <laughs> going home has so many different emotions. Right. Well, then later, <laughs> right later in the movie, he says, "No, he was lying. It's agony." Yeah. So yeah, no. That's, uh, it sounds like it'd be agony. My favorite um, Christopher Nolan film. Wow! Wow! Yeah, I prefer it to. Um, now, there's some I haven't seen. What I haven't. I've, you've still not seen Interstellar. Okay. But I, I prefer it. I prefer it to, to the Black Knight and, and certainly to Memento, which is Black Knight, <laughs> Dark, Dark Knight. So, Chief, I got a question for you, actually. Um, yeah. Interstellar to me is a movie that is just like visually spectacular. Uh, it it deals with some concepts of like time and space and like interdimensional travel that are just fucking mind blowing and awesome and cool. But the plot itself is kind of. Eh, in some areas like I mean it's not a bad plot right. it's like overly convoluted in some points and like the reasoning behind some of the character motivations aren't that great but the movie itself and just like the concept and the visual you know specter spectacle of it all is like fucking amazing so I put that up there like I love the movie but at the same time I'm like you know it's not it's not amazing so I, like, right. I guess my question is like how do you feel about movies that you know, they do everything you want visually. They give you an amazing watching experience, but the plot is lacking. Like, do you do you like those movies? Like, do they they work for you? Before you answer this, well, I just I'm- want to mention this one part in Interstellar where it's very scientific, and then Anne Hathaway's character starts suggesting that the the concept of love transcends time and space. Yeah, that's like her motivation it, for something. That like. I, I would view that view it as one of my favorite movies ever, and it's a little bit lower than that for me now. Just like that part, it's just so yeah, it's that's, so cringe-inducing. That's mostly what I'm referring to. Like her her motivate, she does like a she does like a huge turn in the plot where she like motivates some kind of like weird twist in the action, and her basis for doing it is love instead of reason. When the whole movie, these people are scientists, or like we're like made to know these are like the smartest people in the world. Yeah, and her character just does something based off love and like faith. Like what is that anyway? Uh, anyway, answer my question, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think a, a point that needs to be made is that um, movies are still, and I'm sure there's there's certain film fans, and certainly probably some some uh, directors or critics who disagree with this. But the the purpose of film is still uh, storytelling. Yes. So to mm-hmm. even have a discussion about a movie that the storytelling aspect isn't phenomenal, but the visuals are. Like, for that statement to come out of anyone's mouth to begin with, it usually means that the visuals are absolutely fantastic. I mean, you know, all-time level great. Because if it's simply visually pleasing and the story doesn't satisfy you, no one is even going to bother with, well, you know, the visuals are cool. So I think that at a certain point, the movie either needs to pass the storytelling test or do so well on the aesthetic test that you forget about the story. And that happens, I, I feel, very, very rarely. Uh, I just can't think of many films where, you know, the, the primary thing that lingers with you 
uh, our, our visuals, except usually for bad films. I mean, if you look at the Star Wars prequels, they're known for their visual aspect because it was all CGI. It was revolutionary the way they did it all, too. One shot, three films, one shot that involved no animation, computer, you know, CGI stuff. So, and and the legacy of that is, yes, very influential and groundbreaking from a technical standpoint, Uh, but, you know, just widely panned by everyone for being too reliant on visual gimmicks and not um, and not focused enough on its own storytelling. So I think to answer your question, I, I can't name any movies. I can um, think of a couple. But, um, uh, I, Gravity to me was like that, and then um, yeah, it's kind of, the um, which Avengers movie, uh, the second most recent one, right? That we agreed that like wasn't that good. Captain America or Avengers Two? Avengers Two. Yeah. So, Chief, it's I think like that also. I think the perspective you're kind of coming from is I think it's like a it's hold like on. A, let's um, we haven't explained who this is we're talking to yet. Oh, true. <laughs> so we're I ten guess minutes in. Let's we're ten minutes our in. Guest. This is Andrew Harrison. <laughs> you haven't you haven't intro me yet. I just realized that too. Yeah, we just you're you too stimulating. It? Damn it! <laughs> but take take a moment. Take a moment. Sure. So this is Andrew Harrison. He's a very stimulating guy. Uh, <laughs> a friend of mine and Sturms from from University of Maryland, and. Uh, we haven't talked to him in a while, so we just got like real excited to catch up and kind of forgot that we were recording a podcast and we were supposed to talk about, I don't know, some other things. Um, just, that's, that's fine with me. I am not offended at all. It also needs to be pointed out that, um, I, you know, there, there, other than you know me from Maryland, uh, there's nothing distinguishing to say. Like, I, I don't have a blog to promote. Uh, I don't have a, a job <laughs> that really relates to anything we'll talk about, so... You know, I don't have any. I have no credibility. Essentially, you got a mind, bro. I have, You're building I have it right nothing. now. Everything I say is is just me. I, I am not an expert, and that's anything, why we I'm like probably you. Probably smarter than most of you. So, <laughs> dude, your nickname is Chief. So that's that's it. That's your credibility. <laughs> there just we go. That's called the Chief. I like this movie conversation though. So I have a follow up. Um, yeah. You're saying like the the fundamental principle of movies is storytelling. And yeah. I, I agree with you, but I don't think it like the, I think fundamental or like primary is like kind of the wrong way to think about it because there are so many elements that go into making a movie, especially nowadays. Like the visual is like I think it's like a big pie, and there's like a bunch of different equal pieces. And uh, while I agree, storytelling is should be the most important thing. I think the movies that make money these days, and the movies that are successful, and even some of the movies that are winning Oscars are the ones that are you know visually just amazing. I mean, Birdman. That was a movie that I loved. I loved the plot and narrative of it. But like one of the coolest things about that movie was the way it was directed and the way like they cut it together to make it look like one continuous take for an entire movie. And like you didn't know what was real and what wasn't. Um, but then on the contrary, there's all these fucking superhero movies that have no plot whatsoever, and they're just like big explosions and cool fights, and they are the most successful movies of all time. Um, yeah, and it's not even necessary that they have no plot. They just have a very formulaic and derivative plot that we all have seen about yeah, times before. Right. So it's simple and we focus. know it. Yeah. So Sturm and I were, have been thinking about um, writing our own movie, and okay. I don't know. He, he's giving me, he's giving me a look right now. Like, don't share. Too I don't much know if it. this would be good podcasting to like well, talk I, through the plot of our I movie. I think I think you'll um it, it'll segue into what we wanted to get into a little bit. So we were talking about why there's no consequences for when people run for office. Like, why we're having a conversation about like why are like the most public positions nowadays like they're just based on 
Like you look at the whole Trump thing. He's a reality television star. He's getting so public. Like Mies has this good point where it's like the reason he's popular is because he's not politically correct. Like people like that about him. But we were just right. saying like there should be some kind of like repercussions for being this shitty and being this like saying the things yeah. he says. So the whole premise of our movie is that like it, <laughs> <laughs> do it. Uh, sorry, <laughs> listeners, but um, so like when by. By uh, putting yourself in the ring for election or, like, putting yourself on the ballot, you can do that. It's all fine and well. You can get elected. But there's also a caveat where people can vote if they want you to die, too. So it's like you – it's like win-lose. So it's like you might get elected president, but if you're so shitty and you're so bad at the job – and, like, there's, like, uh, like checkups and, like, evaluation periods throughout the time. And, like, you put yourself out there to a risk just to hold the person to a higher standard to make sure we're getting, the, like, the highest quality people for this thing and we're not getting assholes like Trump. Um, like, right. if he does this – there's a good chance he might die if, say, like 30% of people think he should die. Like, that's a risk. So maybe he would drop yeah. out if that were the case. And Hillary would probably die, too. If, like, if this was a caveat yeah. in today's election, both candidates both, would probably be dying, right? Both candidates would arguably have a greater chance of dying than being elected. Yeah, say it's like 50% of people voting need to vote for you to die and you actually get publicly executed. You think both candidates would die probably, right? Uh, I think that... Um yeah, I mean, probably. The, the only thing that the, the, the only caveat there is, um, since liberals tend to be smarter and more compassionate than conservatives, not gonna vote I feel like a lot, a lot of people would say, well, you know, Trump is a national disgrace, but I don't necessarily think he should die. Or people who hate Hillary would be would would not hesitate at all yeah. uh, to suggest or endorse or physically themselves perform. Her execution. So oh, that's now, a great I'm ironic of twist that, of, of that ilk. If I if I could have Trump executed, I absolutely would. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think the the other thing that that maybe makes this idea not as permanent as you'd like is if you look at the let's just, even the last fifty years, no one is close to Trump in terms of being such a shitty, awful human being. <laughs> I mean, the losers of the last three presidential elections. Mitt Romney, John McCain, and John Kerry are all normal human beings. Pretty good guys. Career politicians. They're fine. I don't want any of them to die. Their flaws are not, and the the things they say in public are not like what Trump says. So Trump is kind of, I hope, a one-off phenomenon. And, uh, you know, even in 2020 when Paul Ryan will inevitably be the uh, Republican nominee if Clinton does win this November, I mean, he's evil in his own way. Uh, He's like banality of evil kind of thing. But uh, but he's not he's not at the level that would provoke such mass outrage uh, as Trump does. So this is something I've been struggling with a little bit. Um, I don't know. The election is kind of it seems like everyone just cares who's a better person and not who actually has the best policies or who's the best candidate. Yeah, but you know what? You, you're, you're right. So what I was going to ask you is trend. that is a trend ahead. in all presidential elections. Sure. There's no presidential election I, I think ever that has been decided uh, by issues are the only thing I can think of. Dude, the public uh, is, is woefully misinformed. The 1860 misinformed. election was 1860 was essentially decided by one issue, uh, which was slavery and, and, uh, and the South. And that was an issue. I mean, if it was anyone else other than Lincoln taking the same position, uh, the outcome probably would have been the same. 
So, but I think the overwhelming majority of elections are simply decided by the "Who would you rather uh, have a beer with?" question, which is, is <laughs> nothing that I don't know if there's any solution to that. I think that's human nature to try and simplify things and focus on the person rather than what they stand for and what they believe in and what they want to accomplish and how they would go about doing well, it. So, yeah, you're right, but you know, uh, the, the, there's four seasons too. Well, do you think it's a pre prerequisite for a president to need to be a good person in order to be a good president? Uh, no, in the sense, but I only say no because, uh, well, there, there are different ways of looking at what a good person is, right? But let's, let's take the base definition of a good person, which I think most people would agree on, which is in the course of daily life, treats the people they encounter and interact with well. And by all accounts, FDR was an asshole. I mean, was incredibly curt, dismissive, arrogant. But he is, in, to my mind, one of the top three, and I think to most people's minds, easily in the top five presidents ever. And he guided the country through a Great Depression and one of the only wars we've ever fought that's actually been justified. And at the end of his administration, the United States emerged as, without question, the world's only superpower. So if he treated people poorly and was able to do that, then I don't care that he treated people poorly. Obviously, we want the best of both worlds. But if, if that, you know, if that's what happens, that's what happens. I, I don't think it's a prerequisite. Hillary Clinton is not known as a personally nice individual, but she's incredibly competent. Yeah. Right? So, you know, there you go. I'm, I'm with you on this, Chief. I mean, like... Me too. I, uh... I'm even more extreme than you are. Like, I don't give a fuck if the person's, like, nice and is going to, like, kiss babies or whatever. Like, I'd love an asshole who's going to make the most competent decision. Right. And this kind of goes down another wormhole of another movie idea we had. Um, we were kind of, like, just spitballing last night. It's like, Mies asked me the same question. He's asked you, should the president be a good person? And, um... It's kind of relevant. I mean, today, nowadays, all these, you know, blue-collar jobs are being replaced by machines and robots. And I'm like, what if the president right. was just, a, like, a decision-making robot machine, and we inputted it with software to, like, weight, you know, certain things over others? Like, I don't know what the, the, the equation or the formula would be, but, like, what if the, res the president was just a robot that made decisions based on, like, the highest probable you know, success for financial gain or like least amount of lives lost on these things. Like I think yeah. that might like the president could be a job that could potentially be run by a robot. <laughs> Just like most yeah. jobs eventually. Cause like really at the end of the day, like the, the public should agree on most issues. I know there's like, you get deeper into the weeds about like wealth distribution and all that kind of bullshit. But I mean, I feel like you could input a machine with the software to kind of realize what the most productive outcome would be on certain decisions. Well, I'm curious what you think, um, like what inputs would you give that presidential robot character? Like what would you want them to, how would you want them I mean, to What calculate? are the most important issues facing the country? Right. That's the question. Like what, how, what, 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 uh, how would you design the software so that they, uh, they make decisions according to the criteria that you feel are important? I'm not a programmer, uh, but uh, yeah, no, I guess, no, no, no. Yeah, I think that's, he's that's asking, asking more hypothetically. Right? Like, what, yeah, yeah. What I guess priorities. What priorities do you give the robot? Exactly. That's what we're trying to figure out. I like, think, I feel like yeah, it's back to the pie metaphor, where it's like this. This is the most important thing to it. Like, what would be the most? I guess like financial prosperity might be a huge thing up there. Uh, you know, peacetime and like, military presence, I guess, would be a very important one. Sure. But, like, I, I, I think you have, you would have to. You have to weight everything differently. 
you'd have to weigh everything differently, and you'd have to give it different. Um, you'd have to give it different. Uh, different programming based on like categories of issues. Yeah. Like I think the way it approached. Let's let's deconstruct economic. Let's go financial issues, and that meaning specifically like monetary policy, the Fed. Uh, th- those things, not even because economic issues is such a broad term. The criteria, the criteria would have to use to like nominate a Fed chairman would have to be completely different from the criteria used in le- in deciding whether or not to launch nuclear weapons. But I think overall, you would have to make its main goal two things: uh, protecting the sovereignty of the United States. You know, because you don't want the robot to have, like, an existential freakout and, like, say, <laughs> oh, this country is actually bad for the world and, like, dismantle us. That would probably that be its first decision, right? <laughs> so uh, that would be your number one priority. And your number two priority would be uh, maintaining, um, you know, maintaining world peace and, and basic stability. Uh, but that would be, you know, the, the software that you would give it would still be programmed by humans so there's a human there's always a human element there that you you couldn't overcome unless you designed a robot to program the software in which case you know then you're just in an infinite regression you're going down a crazy rabbit hole yeah but the one thing i have heard suggested um not at that scale not in terms of giving creating you know artificial intelligence to make decisions at the executive level i have heard however people suggest that City planning, for example, should be completely on. Like, there should be no bullshit where, oh, this guy on the on the city council doesn't like that guy, or this guy's in bed with this company, or this guy's in bed with the union. Like, you know, the streets will be designed in the most efficient way. Like, where water is directed, where waste goes, all those questions can be and should be accomplished simply by automation rather than by debate between political parties and, and candidates and officials that have motivations that go well beyond efficiency. Would, those are the kinds of issues where we can argue that efficiency in and of itself is probably a satisfactory criteria to, to plan, you know, to plan a city. Right. I agree with you, although I don't know that, yeah, some people hold things in higher esteem than efficiency, like, I don't know, maybe moral or ethical things, or it's still going to be hard. Well, I, I, I agree that efficiency is not the most important quality in life. I think, like, obviously no one would fucking agree on what the most important things to put into that are, but, like, what baffles me is, like, how do we agree that there's only two parties of thought that could possibly be the right decisions for our entire country? Like, you look around the rest of the oh, world. Oh, I, I, I agree with you there, I, and I also don't think that there's, you know, you have to, we have to recognize the, the historical roots of all this and how long it's taken to develop. I mean, it's not like two years ago. We're stuck in the know, fucking Stone all, Ages right now, Chief. All, all Americans, all Americans agreed to have two political. Parties. We're going off a principle that was established in the eighteen fucking hundreds, right now. Like, why are there only two parties? No, but, but no, but you know what? The irony is, the founding fathers all hated political parties. Yeah, they George really Washington said there should never be a fucking they king. Wouldn't form. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's frustrating. I don't know the tra- the whole idea of traditions. It kind of ruins. It ruins so everything. many things. Yeah. My big objection to the term and the concept and everything is that it becomes a way to avoid making an, a rational argument for or against something. You can hide behind the word tradition. You can say, "Well, this is how it's always been done," and somehow that frees you of the responsibility to explain why, in and of itself, it's a good or beneficial way of doing things. 
You just have to say it's tradition. Look at gun owners. They just have to say there's a tradition of, of gun ownership in this country. And then they're like off the hook. And it makes me insane because you're not making an argument. It's you're not hiding behind yeah. the notion that certain things shouldn't or cannot be changed, which is patently ridiculous. It, um, well, to go even more extreme there, the whole concept of religious freedom is that and it's just to even greater extent because you can just say, well, I, I can believe whatever I want and I have freedom of belief and that gets you off the hook for almost anything now. And it, well, I think there's there's a uh, okay. I see the point you're trying to make. I, I wouldn't argue that freedom of religion is bad. Uh, I would argue that, and this is I think really what you're pointing to. I would never eliminate the legal right to um, believe, sure. because first of all, people are just going to do it anyway, and then you're creating a, a counterculture of uh, of law breaking. That this point, I think the point you're making is everybody's entitled to their own opinion. That once you claim, oh, I have a right to believe something, you don't then have to defend it. What people don't realize is your right to something doesn't mean that you should do something, right? Yeah. So we, we, I grew up, you know, we, we all heard this all the time growing up. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. Yes, but there's two caveats. Number two, not everyone is entitled to their own facts. Facts are facts. And three, you are entitled to have an opinion and you're entitled to express it. I am not required or obligated to automatically respect it. And that's one of the single biggest problems, I think, in culture today. And it's not as if it emerged recently. I think it's worse now, but it's part of, of who we are, that someone says something and, and it's mean or wrong of you to criticize it or to try to uh, dissect it or deconstruct it. And that's a huge problem because when you get to say, whoa, whoa, this is my belief, you can't cross the line by questioning my belief, then we're really, really counterproductive because we can't get anywhere. You know, right. people who believe wrong things, the only way they'll ever come out of that is if they themselves have an epiphany, which is very, very rarely going to happen. Right. I think that's the biggest thing that's holding society back is the fear of questioning people for their beliefs or opinions. PC bullshit. It's Yeah, it's, right. everyone wants to be politically correct. I mean, the amount of suffering that happens in the world just due to not standing up against people who have bad opinions because I definitely think you can have a bad opinion if it's based on right if it's based on some sort of you know personal bias or anything that's not evidence you're you you can certainly be wrong I mean we were, we were talking about last week um, when we were talking to Jordan about how someone could just say the world's flat and that's their belief like obviously no you can't just believe that that's not respectable Um Right, right. And, because, uh, you know, and this is the really frightening. I'll, I'll just say something briefly before I let you get back to your question. What, what, what has shocked me is that uh, recently I learned that there is a very vibrant online community, mainly online community, of people who are, 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 are really believe that the earth is flat. I mean, these are not like 85-year-old <laughs> deranged hermits. I can't believe I mean, we're talking about this for the second week in a row. 20s and 30s who actually who actually think that the earth is flat. I mean, when you, when I go to my explore page on Instagram, every once in a while, I see a post from, uh, from flat earth people. And it, it boggles my mind. And this is, this is the real question that we got to get down to is we have to place more emphasis on scientific education in this country. It's not, no one would suggest that it's okay to graduate high school without the ability to read. So why is it okay to graduate high school or even college? without the ability to understand basic scientific concepts 
and accept certain scientific truths. Right. Who decided that reading is more important than logic? Because that doesn't make any sense. You have to know how to think before you can do anything. Well, yeah, but I think that reading is, first of all, just from a practical perspective, it's, it's, it's essential. Sure. Right, uh, but and, and any... Through, uh, reading, we, we do know that reading is um, one of the best ways, probably the best way as a young child to develop the mind. Uh, but it, there is a problem. You know, if everyone read more, a lot of this stuff would take care of itself. But That's I do true. agree with you that, to go back to my point, that we need to have more expectations of people than, oh, you're not illiterate? Okay, that's fine. Like, that's not enough. Like, it's not enough. There's the great Mark Twain quote, uh, he who chooses not to read has no advantage over a person who can't Talk about stimulation. <laughs> um, no, but I think it's part of a, like a larger systemic problem when you like it gets into back to like you know religion and like, even I, I, Joe Rogan was saying this. He has like a great stand-up special on Netflix. Everyone should watch it. But uh, he has a joke where like the only difference between religion and cults is that the guy who started it in religion is usually dead, and in cults, the guy's alive. But it goes back to yeah, like, that's a, a whole... that's a great quote. It's a whole, like, <laughs> systemic belief of, like, that herd mentality, and, like, you know, sheep as, like, a bad thing to say about people. They just want to follow us, like, these flat-earth people. Like, obviously, they're not being... Yeah. I don't know if they're being persuaded because they actually believe the world is flat, or it's because they like the people that think the world is flat, and they want to be friends with those people. It's like, why do people... Why is Scientology one of the biggest fucking religions in the world right now, when that is complete bullshit, right? Like... Why yeah. Why do people just jump onto one mentality? And I don't even think it's because they actually believe it. I don't think people take the time to think through the things that they're supporting. They just want to be a part of a movement or they just want to differentiate themselves or they just want to be nonconformist. But at the same time, they're being fucking sheep and they're in this herd mentality where they're just joining on with people because they like the people and they've been persuaded and it's, it's kind of like a salesman. Like they've been sold on the idea enough that they like the way it makes them feel and they haven't really put enough thought into what it actually means. And there are enough people standing up and saying, no, that actually is bullshit or no, like you shouldn't believe that. Here's the reasons why that is not true. Here's right. the scientific backing to why, you know, the world is actually round. You go up in fucking space and look at it. It's a goddamn circle sphere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, there's not enough of those naysayers and all of it. And it's like that cult bullshit where no, everyone's afraid to talk up. And the one guy, like there's another Rogan, like riff. I'm, I'm plagiarizing Joe Rogan right now, but I fucking love You're the guy. You're citing him. That's but literally he says like, you put a bunch of stupid people in the room, the leader's going to be the one who's the most confident really it doesn't matter if they know what the fuck you're yeah. talking about it's just whoever's the most confident yeah, that's, sounding that's, that's pretty funny <laughs> uh yeah well well there's a couple things first of all you make a very good point it's ironic because you know these these people who are who have these really fringe beliefs their whole creed seems to stem from the fact that they believe that most people are sheep and you're pointing out that they're sheep in their own way too which i think is, is nice uh a nice uh turn of thinking there the other thing I would say, I think this is an even bigger problem than, you know, maybe not thinking through things because you want to be known for an association with a certain type of person. I think that people in this country fetishize uh, conspiracy. I think that many, here's my, my, my big theory on why there are so many people who don't, like, if you look at polling, it's, it's there's like, a third, only a third of this country believes that JFK was shot by Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, there's a significant number of people. A third of the United States believes that. Election, who still believe that Barack Obama is a Muslim and B was not born in this country. I mean, these are like one in four, one in five people have these insane beliefs. And here's what I think it comes from. 
I think people take comfort in thinking that the problems of the world can be attributed to a small group of incredibly powerful people working in secret rather than most human beings, their neighbors, friends, coworkers, and families simply being shitty. It is easier for many people to think, well, we're down here and we don't matter. It's a small group of insanely wealthy, secretive people controlling things behind closed doors, and that's why the world is so screwed up. Rather than to say American democracy is screwed up because we have elections and roughly half the people who live here are wrong about everything. I think it is more comforting to say, no, 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 it's the Rothschilds and the Oppenheimers of the world, and they, they own the Pope and they own whole continents, and they do this, <laughs> than it is to say, oh, no, we're all in this together, and a lot of us are fucking up. So I think the flat earth thing, and that's just fetish, you know, fetishizing conspiracy. Like, it would be cool to believe. I mean, these people really, like, want, want the Matrix to be real. They think <laughs> it would be cool at some level if, like, we're being deceived because they want to be the one to, like, break out of the deception. And it's, it, I think that's a big problem. And I think that psychologically might stem from um, maybe an inability to confront um, kind of the chaos of everything. So it makes more sense in their minds if things are ordered, but ordered very badly, than it does to say not ordered and ordered, you know, not ordered badly. Right. I think you've hit on a couple of really good things. I mean, I definitely agree with all of that. Um, The accountability thing is definitely true where people just don't want to be responsible for problems. But complexity, I think, is a bigger cause where it's just it's too hard to conceptualize how so many people could be all contributing to a problem in so many different ways. It's just it's just hard to wrap your mind around it. It's easier just conceptually to say this is the cause, you know, attributed to just one or two reasons as opposed to all these different people in all these different places, all these different things. It's just it's it's hard to put it together. It just doesn't really make sense to most people. I guess we're just not. Yeah. It's not that I don't even think it's an intelligence thing. Like our brains can't do that work. We're just not able to do it. The last thing you said is that people are looking for something. It's kind of just entertainment where it would be cool if this stuff was true. It would be cool. Right. Right. I know that you have gone through. Well, hold on. I know you. I don't know if you still believe this, but. Um, I remember this one time you and uh, my brother were in my apartment in college and you were looking through um, 9-11 conspiracy theories for a while. And I don't know, you were yeah, both getting well, a kick. I think it was, wasn't it, wasn't it UFOs? No, 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 no it definitely wasn't. <laughs> it might have just been my brother. But yeah, th- there was a whole th- a day that was devoted in our apartment to 9-11 conspiracy theories. And I think it was mostly <laughs> just that it would it would be kind of, I don't know, it would definitely be entertaining to like find out. Not fun, but you know, cause it obviously be really fucked up, but just like the, the world is a lot more dull. If you don't make yeah. up all this bullshit, it's kind of like a game. Yeah. It's a game. Like, let's see who's responsible for this when really there's all of these things are just, there's so many components yeah. and it's not that exciting. It's we're all boring. just bored as fuck. Really, when it comes down to it, we're all just well, looking for ways to entertain you, that ourselves. Me of a, of a quote <laughs> the prestige, which we started with. Uh, sure. Uh, the I believe it's um, Hugh Jackman's character says, um, you know, the world is solid all the way through. You know, it, it is very dull and very kind of depressing people to think that the world really does work exactly as it appears to work. 
and and, and it's it, 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 it's them saying no, that really that, that can't that can't really be true, can it? And so they deflect onto all these other things. Uh, but but yeah, I, I think it's things normally operate the way we are taught that they operate, and the way. Uh, that it seems as if they operate. Well, this is something and, uh, it, that's depressing for a lot of people. And the other sad thing is that they could never conceptualize and articulate what we're saying. Like we're explaining their their way of thinking and their beliefs in a way that they would be unable to, uh, which is also depressing. This is something that's always like fascinated me, and this is just like a larger, more generalization uh, kind of look at it. But like the the human mind. And the way we process things we don't know or don't understand is, like, the brain is so fucking cool and that it will, like, make those conclusions for you. So say, like, you're yeah. sitting here and, like, think about, like, the earliest people. They think – or we'll think about the first people that discovered the world was round. It was like, wow, so China is on the other side of the world. Like, what is in between here in the world? Maybe it's filled with magic rainbows or something like that. But, like, not yeah. that's, like, kind of like a candy kind of way to explore it. But, like, the human mind does it, and it's kind of going back to something – I was kind of thinking of this before where people – like, it's like that cult mentality. It's like, what do other people know that I don't know? And like, every mind, I feel, is self-conscious to agree in that regard. And your brain will fill right. those things in for you. That's how memory works, too. It's like your brain fills in the parts that you don't know or don't understand. Yeah, that's the thing I just wrote about. Yeah, your brain is like – your brain is fucking crazy in the way it works. It like fills in. Your brain is just like the best director in the entire world, putting like great scenes oh, and the, cuts the brain together. Is also, your brain is also the the processing power of the human brain is so unbelievable. I mean, we're, we, we, I mean, I don't want to say never because you know if we're still around in a thousand years, things will probably be pretty advanced. But uh, like up to this point and for the foreseeable future. We're not designing a computer that has the processing power of the brain. No, and it's crazy. The brain is the brain is on the brain is. I can't even articulate. It's, it's probably the most it's really right fucking. Now. It's good. probably the most efficient machine in, in existence, and it's like it's that thing where it's like. You put together, say, I don't understand some of the science topic you're talking about. Like, if I don't understand it, my brain is going to make conclusions to justify my like not knowing. And it's it's so fascinating and productive and efficient in a way, but it's also kind of debilitating in that your brain will lie to you. Your brain is not reliable in these kinds. Oh, of so, the brain, like, brains lie to you. The, the, the brain lies to your conscious self all the time. Yeah, like memories are always distorted. Like your memory is. I read some fascinating studies about how the brain puts memories together your memories are woefully inaccurate like they are not the way you remember them and it's just because your brain has pieced together the parts that it didn't comprehend or didn't understand in the moment to what you idealize yeah. them as which is fucking fascinating yeah me. let's not mistake no, um, brain power for I'll, I'll, I'll recall a um, a scene or a moment in, in a film or a television show and I have it in my brain uh, a, a very specific way. And I do have a good memory, so I'm confident in my memory. And, and then I'll watch it for the first time in years. And it will be not totally different, but different enough to say that, to be able to say that my memory of the scene was simply wrong. Like, I'll have, I'll, in my mind, the camera will be coming from one angle, and in the film, it's coming from a completely different angle. Yeah, or the or- quote that I remember will have, will have three or four different words that are that are key to the quote. So yeah, you're, you, you, it fails over time too. I mean, that's another interesting thing. Yeah. How you, you, this is what's really creepy. It weakens. That either, obviously, everyone accepts that your, your brain discards with events that are of no 
value or notoriety. Like, there's a reason that mo- a normal brain doesn't remember every single bus ride to elementary, middle, and high school. You probably remember almost none of them. And we all recognize that we don't have, like, a film of our life that we can watch at will. Yeah. But what's also crazy is that we, I know for certain that there are memories of events in my life that I may have had a year ago that I no longer have, but I don't know that I no longer have them. Or it could be an event so, that, that you, me, and me all experienced together. It could be a night the three of us had out and a memory that we shared, but we'll all have completely different recollections of it all. Right. right. We're yeah. not going to yeah. all remember everything the same way because all of our brains are manipulating every situation in different ways. So this goes back, I think, to the beliefs thing a bit. Where I think it's it's pretty strongly related to it where, I don't know, the whole idea of having strong beliefs – it's based not in reality, but in some variation of reality where you perceive what has happened in your past in a certain way, but it may not even be accurate. So everyone has all these right. strongly held beliefs. I mean, my, my personal take on it is why do we even need beliefs at all? Because we were talking before about freedom of beliefs. Why is that necessary? Why do you have to believe anything when you could just go with a rational, logical approach and say, you know, um, What's the fun in that? Right. Well, no, 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 no. I, I don't think it has anything to – I think that's a good um, devil's advocate response because I think that's what most people listening are probably thinking right now. I don't need to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 equals 4 to the best of my knowledge. That's not up for debate. And, but if, it, if 2 plus 2 was proven to equal 5, then I would change my mind. Like I don't, I'm, I don't believe right. that. I don't believe math. Math just is – there's the highest Math evidence is. for it. Well, right. I think you're running into – one problem that you're running into here is um, diction because the yes. word belief is a complicated word. Definitely. Because it is used – it is used many times, and I'm, I've been guilty of this before simply because I don't know how else to express myself. It is used to express a, a confidence or a trust in a, in a proven thing that's actually not a belief. So for example, most people, and this is how it's worded in like polls and in uh, statements by candidates, uh, someone will say, I believe in evolution or I believe in the truth of evolution. That's actually a misuse of the word. What you really should say is, I understand and accept the truth of evolution by natural selection. Right, right? exactly, that's, yeah, of course. Believe and belief are simply entrenched versatile and um, entrenched and and versatile words that have great value uh, to us because of all the contexts in which they can be rightly or wrongly used. So part of what you run into with belief is is a, is an issue with, um, you know, uh, it's an an issue issue with language communication and misunderstanding. But but I will say that I think that some level of belief is important. And here's the example I'll I'll use. Okay. Uh, I think that, Altruism and compassion, being kind to others, and looking out for the material, physical survival of other human beings who are lacking in the basic necessities of life is a good thing. Now, given enough time and resources and knowledge, could you make a rational, scientific argument that altruism benefits the human community? You probably could, and the very fact that altruism and compassion is hardwired into many of our brains suggests that it is beneficial. But I actually don't have that evidence. 
I choose to believe that being compassionate to the poor and the downtrodden and the misfortunate is a good thing because everything in my mind tells me that that seems fundamentally right. As, as Sam Harris said, he posited that we can quantify morality if we start from the precept that any act that increases suffering is at least somewhat bad and any act that reduces suffering is at least somewhat good. And those ideas are so intuitive to us that I actually don't want or require someone to mathematically demonstrate to me that compassion is beneficial. I think it's such a baked thing that I'm fine calling it a belief and I'm fine believing it. Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, I can offer a little experiential evidence in this since I do work in the nonprofit world and you talk about altruism and like kind of charity. Um, I think, yes, belief is very important into it, but I think another word that could go along with it very well is justification. Um, I work, yeah. I work for a charity. So, I mean, I, uh, my my entire job is to solicit rich people for their money, pretty much to donate right. towards like this cause, which is a great cause. You know, it's it's helping people. It's a medical cause. It's like helping people not die, uh, so it's good. But I see all the time. Like this is something me. I've talked to Mies about a lot. Is really like the reason people are giving. Uh, I mean, yes, the good majority of them are giving because they're related to the cause that it is. Like they've had a family member affected. They've had they know someone. They themselves have been affected. Whatever, but. A lot more people than you would think are doing it just because they have a connection to the people that work where I work, really. It's not because they right. they have a personal connection. They're doing it because they feel like, okay, I, I mean, this is a simplified version of it, but it's like, okay, I have money. I'm in a position of power. I have influence. I need to give a part of this back. And it's basically like they're eeny, meeny, miny, mowing the charity that they're going to give to. And like we just happen to be yeah. a good one, so they give it to that. So people are doing it not based on things where it's like they're compelled by the need to say like, oh, my God, like malaria is the biggest issue in the world. The money that I can donate to malaria far and away will make the biggest difference against eradicating that cause and that will make greater impact on the world than any money I can contribute. It's not like that. They're saying like – Oh well, right. uh, my uh, my coworker knows the girl that works there, so I'm gonna write the big check, and it's gonna be good because they take care of us, and the people that are working with us from that charity are nice, and I like them, so that's why I'm giving them the money. They're, you'd be shocked to see how many people give their money based on that, and not because of personal connection or personal like personal altruism towards a certain cause. It's more of like a justification that like I have the money, I have the power, I should just do it. Meeny, meeny, miny, mo. This is the one I pick. I want to say something that kind of ties both of your points together. Um, so the point about um, beliefs and how it's so it's so ingrained to believe that doing good things is good, you know, helping other people is good. It's kind of hard to make the argument why, but we could probably go into it and figure out why. Like we could talk that through and it makes sense. So I don't think we should I – mean, that could take hours, but – I think it's um, right. what would be easier to, to discuss and what Stern was saying about charity. I think um, part of that is a belief that locality matters where you'd rather help someone that's near you than someone who's far away. Yeah. So that while I'm sure some people donate just to make themselves feel good like, oh, I'm donating or I knew a person who had this disease so I'll donate to that cause. I think a lot of it is you want to be able to see the benefits where – 
if there's a cure for cancer in sometime in the future and you've donated to cancer, you can feel like you've contributed. Yes. But you also right. you feel more inclined to help someone who's an American than someone who's not. And you actually mentioned something about this at the very beginning of this conversation where um, one of the goals of that uh, theoretical robot that would be president is to preserve America. I'm a little torn on why it is we care so much about preserving nations as opposed to preserving just people in general. Like why does the construct of America matter more than anywhere else? Like why are we more concerned with poverty than we're concerned with genocide in Africa? It's very dangerous to think of modern society as the template for human existence. First of all, a huge swath of the world still lives in conditions that existed in our part of the world pretty much prehistoric. years ago. Yeah. Uh, number two, uh, we, you know, we spent tens of thousands of years making very little progress and then made a lot of progress very quickly. So, like, this is a point that people who are... Um, people who are really into uh, like the uh, paleo diet or like eating whole foods make and they're right whether their conclusions are right or not I I honestly don't care but this point is correct we are our stomachs are processing processed food with the same tools that they had to process uh, raw meat that we ate from woolly mammoths like our I mean it's not that dramatic but we're, we're using stomachs that have not really evolved in a, a few thousand years to digest things that came into existence for the last 30 years. So my point with all of this is that there's a great element of tribalism hardwired into the human brain. And that's absolutely why we care more about people close to us than people far away. And it's also why we have a tribal loyalty to the idea of America as our community, because if we say, oh, we're a community and we're strong, then w- w- that makes us feel safe. It's like the fire in the night made us feel safe from attacks from wolves. Like, it makes us safe to say that we don't really know what's going on in the rest of the world. We don't know those people. But if they ever had a problem with us, we're this big, powerful thing that could probably handle it. So when I said, I mean, and I, I think I did make this caveat, it might be true that the existence of America is not actually a good thing. And if that were true, then I would be logically compelled to advocate for um, dismantling the country. You know, not leaving it <laughs> chaos, but dismantling the structure. Right, of just creating something currently. else. But I'm saying any robot you assign to do the job, a, a part of its programming would have to be preserve the sovereignty and stability of, and the existence of the country because. That's just a, a political reality. You couldn't do it without that. Right, you can't make but, uh, the robot you, think, able to do that. The term, yeah. I, the term I use is, is, is we, we have this tribal loyalty. We think of the United States, not our family or our friends or our neighborhood. Uh, some people certainly do, and we all do to an extent, but there's a lot of Americans who think of the United States as their tribe. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's kind of unavoidable, but certainly not good. Yeah, I mean, I think... I definitely I, I'm guilty of some of that, and the way the way you're saying it, yes, I agree. It's it's a rudimentary way of thinking and a way of feeling, but uh, you know I'm guilty of it. I, I can't deny that, and I do. Th- I mean, I'm a very fortunate person. I think all all of us really are fortunate people. Yeah, just be being in America is enough. Like our fortunate. lives could be so much fucking harder than they actually are. 
Um, but I mean, like, yeah, that struggle and that whole mentality, it's, it's like, it's, it's a literary narrative, to be honest. It's like, you need to find something to believe in. You need to find something that's going to get you through the night, blah, 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 whatever, cliche bullshit. But yeah, I mean, like that belief, going back to that, that feeling of belief, like, that's why I think religion and, you know, culticism, is that a noun? Culticism? Sure. Maybe. Uh, religion, culticism. <laughs> it can be now. <laughs> um, like, that's why it's prevalent, because people are so... Like you, you hear all the time the people that are susceptible to this are the weak-minded. Like they prey on the weak. They find the people that are just looking for right. something to latch onto. But I think we're all suffering from that weakness in a way. Like we all want to no, believe we're, in something. No, we're all guilty. We're all guilty to it to a degree. And you know, it's also very easy for me to sit here and say, "Oh, you know, we, we should question our country more, and we should question our neighbors more, and we shouldn't rely on, on this notion that you know our existence is fundamentally good." But if the bombs started falling tomorrow, I mean, realistically, within 10 minutes, we would all be diehard patriots. I mean, if Russia, really think about this, if Russia started bombing us tomorrow. Dude, sign me I up. Would I would immediately. <laughs> sign me up, motherfucker. <laughs> I would immediately abandon the notion that I need to be compassionate towards Russian people. I would want our military to kill as many Russian civilians as possible if I was watching American civilians being killed by Russian. Hold on, and it's crazy. It's so crazy. It's very, easy to, it's very easy to say this in a vacuum, and this is also why the human brain doesn't make good decisions under stress. Because we know that yeah. that's not a good, healthy worldview. Right. But I think we would all have it if we went to war to Russia with Russia tomorrow. I was going to say, it's crazy that you would think that because I think you're basing that off the thought that the people in Russia would immediately rise up and justify the reason for why the bombs are dropping and say, yeah, fuck America, kill as many of them as possible. And like you know that as a rational and logic human being that – Yes, you can. This is gonna sound really fucked up, but you can justify wanting their deaths because you know they're wanting the same thing for you, which is right. just a yeah. fucking yeah. crazy mental yeah. process. <laughs> let's flip the script because let's say, um, let's say America, let's say we turn on the news tomorrow morning and we see that we've invaded the, somebody. Right, the U.S. is bombing Russia, and we don't know why. We're gonna jump to the defense of the U.S. if we're arguing with we anyone. We don't really have a choice in that matter. I do think we? Well, we well, do. Well, we have examples of this in the last 10 years. I mean, when we invaded Iraq and Afghanistan, you basically went one of two ways. Either you thought this was a good thing, or even if you thought it was a flawed thing, you said, but this is our country, and, and, I, and I support it. Or you said, oh, my God, we're supposed to be the greatest country in the world. We're invading sovereign states and killing innocent civilians by the hundreds of thousands for reasons that are not clear and are not necessarily admirable. I mean, there was a, it wasn't like Vietnam. And then the only reason that's the case is because a lot more American soldiers were killed in Vietnam. But there was a pretty vocal anti-war movement in this country. So uh, th that's the other thing is that like, Sturm, to go back to your point about, you know, what are the Russians thinking? He, I, I'm, I, I'm sure that, that there are some Iraqis and Afghanis who maybe understand that there were soft footage on the news and said, yeah, there are some Americans out there who really think this is a bad thing. But is that going to be enough to persuade them from planting an IED by the road to kill the people who are physically there killing their brothers and sisters? It becomes no, fight or so, flight. Yeah. This is why, that's why war is the, is the worst thing. Yeah. There are lots of, war exists because we make really bad mistakes on the mental and emotional and psychological level all the time. And we do this as individuals, as, as small groups of people, as, as larger groups of people, and as entire countries. 
I wanted to ask you this. Um, don't you think in a lot of ways nationalism and religion are kind of the same where people are supporting yeah. things just because it's – you have to. You've been told since you Cheap. were – you've been, ah. right, you've been <laughs> Your parents told you when you were a baby and when you were a young child, this is what we believe in. We believe Born in God. We believe in, in the USA. That song is actually not patriotic <laughs> at all. Cheap, you want to get into why Born in the USA isn't patriotic at all? Yeah, born in the USA. If you listen to the lyrics, uh, is essentially about a guy, uh, you know, born down in a dead man's town. Uh, uh, I'm getting lyrics now that I try <laughs> to recite them, make myself look like a fool. Uh, but it, the uh, the notion is that he's this guy who's kind of aimless and doesn't really. They're they're sparse, but you can infer a lot from them. You know, it's a guy who really have a great life and gets in legal trouble and is drafted and is, is sent, um, quote, still the yellow man. And he loses his brother, who also fought, and he comes home and, uh, you know, he can't get a, he can't get a job and, and he's, he, he, there's an allusion to a penitentiary that may suggest that he might be in and out of jail. Uh, and, and the, and he's, and Bruce is very, or the character really is very sarcastically saying born in the USA. Uh, so it's about how the U.S., you know, fought this horrible Vietnam War, uh, sent people who had no interest in killing to kill people who didn't deserve to be killed, and then when they got home, gave them a big fuck you and didn't want to take care of them. Now, the reason people think it's so patriotic is because of the musical sound of the song. Right, but it sounds you know fucking Bruce great. It sounds like Go America. It sounds like an anthem, but if you know Bruce Springsteen, one thing that he does in, in across That's almost every right. album he's ever made is he writes songs with really brutal, sad lyrics that are really catchy. Hungry Heart is an awful lyric. In, in, the, in the first verse, the second line of the song, the guy abandons his wife and kids simply because he's <laughs> poor. So this is what Bruce does. Bruce writes these really uh, magnetic and catchy and musically fun songs with these really, really dark lyrics. And I think his... The reason he does that, one, is it's fun to play fun music. Two, there's a tradition in, the, in, in music in this country, especially in blues, of writing music that makes you feel good, but lyrics that make you feel bad. That's, that's a thing that exists. Yep. And I think the reason he does it, and the reason a lot of musicians and artists have done it for 100 years, is to juxtapose you know, the, the duality of, of our being. We, have, we are never really all the way happy or all the way sad, and we're never all the way good or all the way bad. So they make these... These pieces of music that reflect that that contradiction within us, but yeah, anyone who who, who like pulls out born in the USA on a Fourth of July party, they're idiots. I mean, it is they have a fundamental misunderstanding. I think I think this uh, kind of sums up this entire conversation we've just had in a very good way. It's like goes back to that sheep mentality. It goes back to that buy-in without understanding. It goes back to the whole fucking how the picture that you're looking at expands way beyond the frame that you're looking at. It Bruce in. songs are a metaphor um, for all of society. And, and chief, I fucking <laughs> I fucking love what you're doing. Uh, I, I we don't have a lot of time left, so I kind of want to pivot into just like kind of a wrap up and conclusion. But um, I definitely think you're going to be a repeat guest and I hope you are because this is fucking awesome we had a lot of uh, points that we we still wanted to cover with you so we'd love to have you back I want to I want to do I want to end on kind of a lighter note if we still have <laughs> listeners <laughs> on board right now but uh, you want to you want to play a game chief uh, yeah and I'll say first of all it's, it's been it's been a lot of fun 
being on, and I, and I certainly hope to come back. I think we've had a great discussion. So you got an yeah, open invitation. You got an open invitation, my Anytime. friend. Uh, so this isn't even really a game. This is kind of just uh, a thought exercise. So uh, we we are big fans of Pete Holmes. You ever heard? Of, have you ever heard of Pete Holmes? That he has a podcast yeah, called. I've heard, of, I've heard a couple of his. Uh, he's a stand-up comedian, right? Yes, yeah. and he has a podcast called "You Made It Weird," and he has incredible guests. Really, like he gets the like the creme de la creme of comedians and actors and like all this great stuff. So shout out to Pete Holmes. Shout out to Joe Rogan. Uh, yeah, promote us, we've, please, we've, guys. Uh, we've mentioned we, these are our idols, so we like these guys a lot. But he, I think every guest he has, or almost every guest he has, Most he asks them, yeah. them this question, and it's a great question because it's it's a hard question. Uh, prepare to think, motherfucker. But um, <laughs> really building this up a lot. It's a fun question. So he always asks them. Recall the time in your life when you've laughed the hardest you've ever laughed. Oh, this is a fantastic question. Do you have it off the top of your head? It better be fantastic considering I, the buildup. I, I don't. I have. A I've been thinking about it for weeks, and I have no idea. Me. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I have a couple things that come to mind. Um, one of the things that comes to mind is I have a memory, and I believe I was in fifth grade, and I was at recess with the twin brothers who at that time were my best friends. What were their names? I'm no longer in contact with them. Mike and Dan. And uh, Those I was are no pretty boring names. Them, we kind of went separate ways in our lives. But at, for a small window in late elementary school and, and early middle school, we were really, really close. And I don't remember what was said, but I remember something happening or someone saying something or doing something. And it wasn't one thing. It was like a series of statements and a series of actions at recess in fifth grade where I laughed so hard that my throat hurt. And that was the first time that it ever happened to me. And I didn't know it was possible for that to happen. And it was very fun and also weird to be like, I am finding this so funny that for a good like half hour afterwards, my throat was sore. Now that's happened again since. I also think um, there was a moment in the, in the film The Big Lebowski, which is my, one of my favorite movies ever. Love made, the Coen uh, Brothers. The Shout out to the Coen Brothers. <laughs> each, each conversation that, there's only two, but each conversation that um, John Turturro's character has with Donnie Walter and the dude in the bowling alley, there was a, there was a night where I was, I believe it was in Maryland, Mies, it might have been a fresh year, where I was watching that movie and my computer and I replayed that first conversation they have with one another. Or no, it was the second conversation. But it was both. But I replayed it probably 15 times, back to back to back to back. Wow. Can you give us a and summary of what they discussed? Hysterically, every single time. Yeah, what is, what is the discussion so, in, the, in the movie, for those who don't in know? In like a 30-second summary. Uh, in a 30-second summary, they, they're rivals with this really eccentric, bowler played by John Turturro, who's a former, who was a child molester. Uh, and, in the movie, uh, not in real life. He says insane thing. He just he says insane. Walter, who's John Goodman's character, moves the date of their competition because it was falling on the Sabbath. Oh, is this over the line? He's very serious about the Sabbath. Is this what? over the line scene? Uh, no, 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 not over the line. Oh. It's much funnier than over the line. <laughs> but, but Hayes, Sorry. Hayes finds out that he's done this. And he storms over to them. He, he's irate. He's, he's, he's like George Brett went with the pine tar mask. <laughs> oh, my mask. God. Good he starts, fucking he recollection. Starts, he starts screaming at them. And, and, he, and he screams at them and screams at them. 
and it was moved. It was supposed to be on a Saturday. Now it's on a Wednesday, and he and he stopped. He goes, he goes, I would have fucked you in the ass Saturday, <laughs> you in the ass Wednesday instead. And that I, it's like the greatest line in the history of film. Dude, that's a really good John Turturro impression. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So that 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 those two moments come to mind. But I can certainly say that I. I, I, any time you laugh so hard your throat hurts or that you can't get over one line that someone says in real life or in a film, anything you can't get over, like you hear it 15 times and you're still like, that's hilarious. Those are, that's the stuff that life is made of. All right, well... I, I that love awesome. that movie. Yeah, great. I mean, movies are great. Goes back to it's how we started this conversation. That's how we'll end it. Ooh, I so guess. symmetrical. Uh, yeah, fucking symmetry. Yeah, uh, That's Chief. This, this is great, man. We'll uh, let's do this again soon, buddy. Uh, thank you so much for having me, guys. You have a good night. Don't thank us. Thank, thank you, you, buddy. Yeah, thanks, Chief. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> All right, talk to you later. All right, have a good one, my friend. All right, see you later, boy.